You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 823 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you on a Wednesday evening into Thursday morning. And today's show is brought to you by rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. The second half of this podcast will be a discussion with good friend of the program, Ben Ladner, about the Eastern Conference Finals. But first, a couple of news items to, t- to touch on on today's show. The first of which was the fact that the NBA announced... The All-NBA teams for this season on Wednesday afternoon, Trey Young was not selected to an All-NBA team for the Hawks. He finished ninth among guards. Uh, He finished behind James Harden, Luka Doncic, Damian Lillard, Chris Paul, Ben Simmons, Russell Westbrook, Bradley Beal, and Kyle Lowry in that order at the guard position. Also, Chris Middleton got more votes than both Simmons and Westbrook, both of whom made the third-team All-NBA at guard. But Middleton actually had his vote split between guard and four, but he kind of got snubbed. And uh, honestly, he was the one guy that kind of got uh, screwed over by the alignment of the voting this year and sort of the positional positional flexibility and all that stuff. So you can maybe throw him in there as well as someone who was technically ahead of Trey at the guard spots. But um, for the record, Trey did finish ahead of Donovan Mitchell and Kemba Walker and Devin Booker among guards who received votes. Uh, Trey got one second-team vote and 10 third-team votes out of the 100 voters that put together ballots for this particular honor. Um, just for, as a point of reference, I discussed this ad nauseum on multiple episodes previously uh, during the uh, hiatus, and you can go back and listen to those if you want to for, for my full thoughts, but my short version would be that I think Young should have finished higher than this, especially when ca- compared to guys like Westbrook and Beal, while also I'm not surprised at all that he did not make the All-NBA team. That's kind of what I thought was going to happen, that he would get some votes, but not quite get, the, get in the top six to actually make one of the, one of the top three teams. That's, that's what happened in this spot. Um, voters tend to gra- gravitate towards guys on winning teams, frankly, and the only guy ahead of him that was not on a good team this year was Beal, and that's one that, I, again, I would probably have some uh, issue with if I was a Hawks fan, but still, uh, Beal didn't make it either, and uh, he also had big-time counting stats on, was actually on a better team than what the Hawks had this year, but only by a little bit. Um, just for the record, Trey was fantastic this year, as another uh, sort of way of pointing that. He averaged 29.6 points and 9.3, 9.3 assists per game on almost 60% true shooting, and uh, this is important. The Hawks were significantly, yes, significantly better when he played than when, than when he sat, which is not always the case for these guys on non-playoff teams making this kind of um, run towards an All-NBA honor. So it's not really his fault at all that the Hawks were bad this year, and Hawks fans can take solace in that, and that they have this perennial All-Star as their centerpiece moving forward. Uh, Young will be in the mix for All-NBA for a long, long time, in my view, so I wouldn't worry too much about this if I'm a Hawks fan. He is very, very good already, obviously, and that matters a lot more than whether he finished 6th or ninth in All-NBA voting in his second season, so nothing terribly shocking, nothing bad about this. You know, I'm sure that he would have liked to have made it. It would have been nice for the Hawks to get somebody um, on one of the award um, sort of distinctions, but there you go on that. Trey falls just a little bit short in the All-NBA voting. Last thing um, news-wise to get to is that after I recorded the uh, Mailbag podcast last night, which if you missed it, go back and listen to that one. It's uh, not not too long for your uh, commute or something like that. But after I recorded that podcast, Adrian Wojnarowski reported that the NBA was, quote, locked in, end quote, on November 18th for the draft. 
I discussed that, that that date a little bit already when it was first reported, but it appears now, though, that it is official, and we can do a little bit of cal- calendar planning because the NBA then announced on Wednesday that November 18th is the date officially for the draft. Now, it does say in the release that it is, quote, subject to change as circumstances warrant, end quote. So part of that's just pandemic-related and there's all the uncertainty, but you would have to say that uh, it does seem to be in that sort of realm of being locked as much as humanly possible right now, uh, two months ahead of time. Um, also, the league noted in the announcement that the that the revised date, quote, allows additional time to conduct 2020 pre-draft process, gather more information about the potential start of next season, and advance conversations between the NBA and the MBPA regarding related CBA matters, end quote. Also, more of the pre-draft timeline was being reported in bits and pieces on Wednesday evening from Chris Haynes and Chums and all that stuff. I'm going to wait till that's all finalized and I'll share all, all that with you. It's just kind of procedural stuff on the team side and the player side. Nothing that's going to be hugely impactful for the fan, but there you go on all of that. The draft, uh, the big takeaway is the draft is going to be on the 18th, barring some, barring some change. We're still two months away, obviously, but it's going to be on a Wednesday this time around, presumably, in my view, to try to avoid the NFL, since the draft is usually on a Thursday, but there will be NFL games in November on a Thursday, so once it makes a lot of sense through that lens. As a reminder, we will have a ton more draft coverage, but for any new listeners, it's, it's a good time to go back and listen to the archives and catch up on draft cards that we've already been doing for the last several months. Extensive conversations that I've had with Jackson Frank and P.D. Webb and Zach Hood and Zach Milner, Tower Jones, Max Carlin, Ben Pfeiffer, Ricky O'Donnell, Brian Schroeder. Many, many more. All kinds of draft coverage has already happened in this space. We'll have much, much more over the next two months. So now we know, again, where the draft is supposed to be two months from now, essentially. So uh, strap in. We'll have plenty coming on the NBA draft. Okay, before we move on, a word from our sponsor on today's podcast, and that is rockauto.com. Chain stores often have different price tiers for pro mechanics and do-it-yourselfers, but at rockauto.com, prices are always the same for everyone, and they're always reliably low. Instead of changing prices on what the market dictates, like airlines often do, rockauto.com simply presents the lowest prices possible at all times. No matter what kind of car or truck that you might have, rockauto.com has everything you need. Just a few easy clicks, and they will have it delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is also very easy to navigate. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, the specs, and the prices that you prefer. RockAuto.com is for everybody and does not require membership or an account login of any kind. And best of all, prices at RockAuto.com are always reliably low and the same for pros and do-it-yourselfers. So why spend up to twice as much for the same exact parts? Go to RockAuto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or your truck from there right locked on in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know that we sent you to them. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. RockAuto.com. And now, without further delay, here's my conversation about the Easter Conference Finals with Ben Ladner. Ben, thank you, as always, for joining the podcast. How are you doing on this fine Wednesday? I'm doing well, about as well as one can be uh, during these very strange and tumultuous times, as we've discussed many times, and I think everyone has sort of come to realize by this point. So uh, I guess all in all, I'm doing okay. That's uh yeah it's well said we're we're hanging in there for the most part there is a lot of basketball to discuss so I've brought you in to discuss all things NBA playoffs right now we are recording this portion of the podcast on Wednesday evening um, in advance of Game Two of the Easter, of the Easter Conference Finals and we'll start there in the East because Game One of course happened on Tuesday um, that was an interesting game in a lot of ways uh, and I want to ask you about Game One before we look ahead sort of to the rest of the series. Um, Let's just start broad. What, what, what were your takeaways uh, from game one? Obviously, the Heat 
snuck away with a victory in overtime. It was about as close as a game can be. Um, but uh, did you take much from that? What did you sort of glean? I think the the big sort of broad stroke that I took away from this was that Boston is the more talented team in the series. I think that's been evident all year. They're just a supremely talented, uh, especially on the perimeter and, and particularly with their wings. Very good two-way team. But Miami just fights like hell. And I think it would, the same case was was true in their last series against the Bucks, where I think you could argue the Bucks were more talented, although that wasn't quite a pronounced edge. And I might even give it to Miami there. But Miami is just going to play harder than whoever they're playing. And that's not a slight against Boston, not to say that they were lazy or anything like that. But I think we saw down the stretch, like Miami just knows how to dial it in. They are extremely confident right now. Um, and, and not to mention, they're playing really good basketball, too. I mean, it's, they're executing well. They're running good stuff. Eric Spolster, I think, has done a wonderful job. They have talented players, but it just feels like they kind of live for these late-game, close situations. We saw it several times where they came back against the Bucks and separated themselves late in those games. Obviously, we're down by double figures in the fourth quarter last night, came back to take a lead, and then eventually relinquish it, then win in overtime with just clutch plays after clutch play down the stretch. Um, I think that's who Miami is. It makes for a really fun team to watch and I think Boston has the firepower and the execution kind of everything I talked about with Miami Boston has that for themselves too so I think just the intelligence the versatility and uh, I guess the the execution and, and talent level in this series is really really high and when you when you put that sort of against the backdrop of a conference finals and and raise the stakes and really brighten the lights I thought everyone on the court last night basically responded to that and played really, really well. Um, and I was just impressed with the overall quality of play because I, I kind of expected this to be a defensive style of series where it wasn't going to be super efficient. Teams were going to have to really, really work for shots. And they were working for shots, but you know, 119 offensive rating for Miami last night, 116 and a half for Boston. I mean, those are those are pretty efficient offensive outputs for two teams that I think would like to hang their hat on defense and, and sort of have this grit and toughness in their DNA, and I, I expected it to be a little bit more low scoring. It could eventually swing that way, but that was it kind of went against my expectations last night. And I would prefer, I mean, I would be happy if every game of the series was like that, you know, high scoring, efficient, but still close, still tough, um, still, still defensive minded. Just, you know, I thought last night the offense was just better than the defense. Yeah, and you, and you said it, but I, I I tend to think that it's going to slow down. It's going to get more of a rock fight as we go here, I would imagine, just because, you know, offensively, these teams are talented, but I think they're, you know, Boston, especially in the playoffs, has been better defensively than offensively. Miami's been pretty balanced, but generally as series go, especially if they're close fought, things slow down um, and you get into the, that more defensive first mindset. But I, I agree, you know, game one was really entertaining in a way that I wasn't sure it was going to be. I mean, people people like you and I would really appreciate the series anyway, but there was even more like a casual fan entertaining game with, with that much offense. Um, stars making star plays, obviously the band block, all that stuff. Um yeah, I tend to agree that Boston is the more talented team. I think Boston's best five is the best five in this series. Um, Miami is deeper than Boston, especially without Gordon Hayward. Boston's bench actually was not too bad in game one. Brad Wanamaker was particularly good um, as someone who has not always been that way, but he played very well, I thought, in game one. But Miami just has a little bit a little bit deeper bench, I think. Um, my One of my broad takeaways coming in, I, I should say, uh, to the series is that 
I was a little worried that Miami's perimeter guys would get would get picked on. That happened uh, considerably at times, especially early. I think it was pretty uh, pretty glaring that my, that Boston came in and did kind of the opposite of what Milwaukee did and really tried to target some of the weak points, and that's what I would be doing as well. But ultimately, it's going to be hard for Boston to win this series if Kemba is not good, and Kemba was not very good in Game 1. And that's not, it's not only that, but if, if Dragic beats Kemba soundly the way that he did in Game 1, that is an X factor, obviously, and that's it goes to you know logic. But, you know, Dragic has been really good really the entire playoffs, and Kemba's been a little bit hit and miss. That's just one spot, and we'll, t- and we'll touch on some other stuff, but uh, that's that's one thing that I, I feel like we have to talk about for a second is that, you know, Kemba has some advantages in the series against Miami's perimeter defenders, which, other than Butler, are not fantastic, um, and he didn't really take advantage of that in Game 1. I agree. He sort of came around at the end, ended up 6-for-19 yeah. for 19 points, and, and had that, the one that sticks out to me is that step-back mid-range jumper, in crunch time, either late in regulation or during overtime. But one of nine from three is just not good enough. I mean, he he's going to get better. It's not like he's going to shoot, um, you know, one of nine every single game and just continue to be terrible. He's a good shooter. He's a good player. Good players have bad nights. But when you only have seven games and, you know, this was a winnable game for Boston anyway. So, so maybe there's optimism for them that if Kemba just plays at his usual level, they can kind of get back level and, and maybe have a, the upper hand in this series. But you know, this is the kind of series where you can't afford to really waste a, a one for nine game. Like if you, you know, you can't get that back, you know, you don't have time for the averages to kind of level themselves out. As we've talked about, you know, before when we previewed the Western Conference playoffs, um, you every game is kind of its own thing. And it matters in a way that's that's kind of specific to that game. And, and it's it's very self-contained. Um, I thought the the big area where and, and you mentioned Dragic, too, he was fantastic. Twenty nine points. Um for assist. I thought his penetration and his creation, and you could say the same of Kemba too. I thought that was the one area, even against Toronto, when Kemba has struggled in these playoffs, I think he's still been pretty good at collapsing defenses, kicking out, making things happen for Boston in a way that really only Tatum can uh, outside of Kemba. I thought Dragic did very much the same thing last night, except he was converting his layups and hitting threes. And so he kind of had everything clicking uh, for Miami. But I thought the the big area, even more than the offense last night that stuck out to me between those two guys, was late in the game. Miami was trying to get Kemba Walker on the switch every yep. single time in crunch time. Boston was trying to get Dragic and sometimes Tyler Hero on the switch every single time. And the difference was that Boston gave up that switch and they let Kemba get switched onto the ball. And Jimmy Butler kind of had his way at times. I thought Miami did a lot better job having their guys. Usually it was Butler if if, uh, if Tatum had the ball or if, if Kemba had the ball. It was Butler on the ball, and he would get over the screen and, and not give up that switch. And even if Boston did get that matchup, it was with like six on the shot clock. And so it just took them a really long time to get into their sets. And I thought that was really smart by Miami to just make them work for that switch because so often you see – you know, some uh, some guy comes up to set the screen and they just automatically switch. Like, okay, you know, this is the screen. We're just, this is what we do, and that's giving the offense the advantage. And I thought Miami was really smart to recognize, no, this is what Boston wants. These are our two weakest defenders. We're not just going to give them this switch. And I thought Butler, Adebayo, Jay Crowder, whoever it was that was guarding the ball, did a really nice job staying attached and really making Boston either earn that switch or reroute their offense someone else somewhere else. And the Celtics looked a little bit more content to give that up. I wonder if that's going to change in Game 2 where they're just not going to let Kemba get out on an island as often. But that's that's also a lot easier said than done sometimes when you 
set a good screen. We have Bam Adebayo setting that screen, or you have Goran Dragic usually if it's Walker guarding him. If those guys set good screens, a lot of the time you don't have a choice but to switch. Um, so that, that's going to be one kind of defensive wrinkle that's going to be worth watching is just how damaging is each of these teams' star point guards going to be on defense. And I think the team that is able to mitigate that the best might have the upper hand in the series. Yeah, I think one of the things that I noticed sort of to that end is that uh, I agree with you that Miami did a good job of avoiding uh, those uh, dangerous situations whenever possible. But there are still lineups for, for Miami when they just kind of can't help it. When you're playing Dragic and Hero together, those guys are not absolutely terrible defenders. But in, in a playoff series, if that's your backcourt, they could be picked on a little bit defensively. Same with Duncan Robinson when he plays, even Kendrick Nunn when he plays. They have some weak they have some weak spots. I thought that Boston early on was a little bit better and then late kind of got away from this. Um, you know, there was there was some settling. Like even Tatum, who played well overall, I thought settled a few times for some, you know, shots he can make to be sure, um, but some contested step backs and stuff like that when he's got Dragic on a switch or he's got here on a switch. And um, they have to be a little bit more intentional um, when they when they get the matchup finally to go ahead and take advantage of it. Because, you know, Kemba has to be out there for Boston, essentially. Unless it's a defense-only possession, which we saw at the very end of the game at least once. They, they put Wanamaker in there. But in general, in crunch time, Kemba's going to be on the floor. Whereas Miami, yes, Dragic is going to play. But they could take Hero off if they go defense. Uh, if they want right. to go defense, if they, if they have the lead, they, they, they could go to Jones Jr. or Crowder or, or Iguodala or all three. So I don't know. It's interesting to me. Those little things matter so much in this series. But you know, Kemba's got to be better. I think defensively, he's always competed well. But he can be can be targeted, like you said. Um, he's the only guy that can be targeted in that five. But they're going to go at him, and they and they absolutely should. And it's going to go back the other way around, but um, whoever sort of maximizes those edges probably has an advantage overall in the series. I just kind of, if I'm if I'm someone who's looking at it from from Boston side, I would be uh, frustrated anytime Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum settles for a contested jumper against Tyler Hero or, or Gorgon Dragic. That that would that, that would make me pull my hair out. Um, this this is this is not really that that scenario, but there was the one that I can't get out of my head in the tie game at the very end. This is not against one of those guys, but Tatum settling for yep. like a 30% uh, shot maybe on a contested three in a tie game. It's just like, that's just, you're throwing math out the window. You don't need a three there. I'm fine with threes in general. He's a great shot maker, all that stuff. But in a tie game with a last shot, unless it's an open three, you shouldn't be taking a three. It's just kind of the simple math. And uh, there was just a lot of that. That was not a situation where he was guarded by someone who was totally in fear. He had a real defender on him in that spot, but it's just sort of a microcosm of, of what I thought was a little bit too much settling for them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think the other big thing to note here is that the Celtics do not have a help defender like Bam Adebayo. I mean, Tice nope. is good. Jason Tatum is good in the passing lanes and kind of being smart about his weak side responsibilities and things like that. But in terms of just erasing plays, I mean, we saw it on the last play. Just in terms of of being able to clean up messes and make plays as a help defender, especially around the rim, Bam Adebayo is a weapon that that the Celtics just can't counter. And so, you know, if not only was Miami keeping their preferred defender on the ball, but they also had Bam Adebayo lurking behind the play to clean up a mess if there if there was one, and indeed there was one on the final possession, and he cleaned it up, which I think that makes it even more imperative for Boston because they don't have that guy to keep their preferred defender on the ball because if you're letting Kemba get switched on or whoever it is, Wanamaker, um, if, if, uh, if, if Williams is in the game, Robert Williams, that is, uh, Grant Williams actually moves his feet pretty well, 
uh, Robert Williams, whoever it is, if that guy gets out on an island and you don't have that help defender, it just puts a lot of pressure on the rest of your pieces. And then you're flying around and you're in rotation and Miami can move the ball. They got that one play out of a timeout where Hero ended up with a wide open top of the key three, which was yep. not the initial look. But because Miami was able to get that initial penetration and swing the ball around, Hero was able to get an open look because Boston was rotating and kind of scrambled. So I think that's kind of where my I thought I thought in, in last the last round, Boston did a really good job of exploiting Toronto's help. But Miami doesn't help as liberally, and I think they have better help defenders in a lot of ways. At least at center, they do. And so I, I, I don't know. Just just the 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 battle of like who can collapse the defense better, I think, is going to be really fascinating because both teams' point guards do a really good job of that. Both teams have wings who can do that, and we saw a lot of sequences last night where one team was able to move the ball around and get an open three, the other team wasn't. Uh, usually it was Miami last night, and that's that's kind of those types of shots ended up swinging the game for them. Um, so that that's just again just one of those things on defense that I think is going to be worth watching, and you know whether either team can kind of tighten that up and take away those shots and make that a point of emphasis. I'll be curious to watch moving forward. I agree, and you know it's interesting that you know Boston doesn't have like you reference that you know, that cleanup guy near the rim. Tice has been pretty good. He's not Bam Adebayo. They do have the two, you know, two great help guys in Tatum and Smart. Smart is ridiculous in every way defensively. He's so good at almost everything. Um, But I was going to ask you, what did you make of, I think Boston almost decided to take Duncan Robinson out of the series in game one, at least in game one, um, by putting Smart on him. And that, it worked. Duncan was a non-factor. He was not a big factor in the last series either. Um... That part of it worked, but also your sort of the strategy aspect of taking Marcus Smart and not letting him be the help guy because that's the one thing you don't want to do is help off Duncan Robinson. What did you make of that? It's not again, it's one of those one offs, but and Robinson didn't play a whole lot pretty much because he wasn't effective. But if that happens again, Robinson's playing more often. Would you stick with that, or would you want more? Uh, would you want more of Marcus Smart, kind of being Marcus Smart and playing passing lanes and being a little bit more aggressive at the point of attack? Maybe, maybe put him on Dragic to start with, get Dragic out of out, out of commission a little bit, because you know, for better or worse, Smart is still the best defender they have against Dragic and Hero and Robinson and everybody else, but especially against Dragic, and they chose to not have him really do that that much in Game One. Yeah, it's such an interesting question. That was the biggest defensive question I had about Boston coming in, just in terms of a matchup standpoint, because there's there's really no perfect option. There's not a bad option. No. Part of that is just the Celtics have so many versatile defenders that you know you you get strengths. Each defender has their strengths, and you can have certain advantages by matching up this way. You can have other advantages matching up that way. But at the same time, no matter how you match up, there's always going to be a little bit of okay, well. You know, maybe Dragic has a little bit more of an edge here than he would against this guy. But if we switch it, maybe Robinson gets free a little bit more. And I think that's part of the challenge Miami presents, not to mention Bam Adebayo and what he can do as a high post passer going downhill, things like that. Um, you know, I think the the beauty of Miami's offense is they just have so many points at which they can attack. Um, I think Smart is probably the best option on Robinson. He's not the tallest guy, but he's got pretty good length, and he's just really, really good at navigating screens. That also allows you to put Jalen Brown on Goran Dragic and put a little bit more size on Dragic, which obviously didn't work last night, but I think in theory makes some sense. I might actually think about trying Tatum on Dragic because 
as good as Jason Tatum is on defense, and I mentioned his help earlier, I think that is where his most of his value is on defense is is in his help. Um, and and really, he doesn't have the physical strength, I don't think, to really contain Jimmy Butler. We saw that a few times in crunch time last night, especially on that and one Butler had to give Miami the lead in overtime, where he he just went right through Jason Tatum. And Tatum was his primary assignment for much of the night. And I just don't think that he has the physical strength to uh, to endure that matchup for an entire game. I would think about Jalen Brown. I would think about Marcus Smart. This is where not having Gordon Hayward, I think, really hurts Boston. Um, but then, you know, if it, it's that same question I was talking, the problem I was talking about earlier, you put someone else on Butler, then you got to put someone else on Robinson, and you did such a good job on him in game one that you don't want to let him get going in game two. So, again, Boston has a lot of good options for almost everyone on the Heat, but there's always going to be that one matchup to me that I don't feel completely comfortable with because ideally you just want to put Marcus Smart on everybody, right? <laughs> right, um, exactly. But you can't do that. So you sort of have to live with, okay, maybe Duncan Robinson's going to get loose a couple more times than he did in game one. But if that means we hold Goran Dragic to 22 points instead of 29 and Jimmy Butler isn't carving up our defense in crunch time, maybe we can live with those few extra shots that Robinson gets up. So it's going to be... If I were Brad Stevens and he did this a little bit in game one, I would just try different looks until I find the one that works. Maybe you, you stumble on a combination and a matchup that you didn't anticipate working, and it ends up being really effective. And so I think you know, th- there's room here to experiment because, again, they have so many strong defenders that it's not like you're going to get killed if you stick Jalen Brown on Duncan Robinson and, and see how it looks. You might not be as good, but you're not going to get destroyed. And if it doesn't work, you can kind of try something different. I think that's one of Boston's big strengths, which will be even more augmented if and when Gordon Hayward comes back. Yes, it's a really interesting matchup series in a lot of ways. They're not, I mean, there are some obvious things that both teams are doing, but a lot of nuance. I thought Spo got the better of Stevens a little bit in game one, but the, these, these guys are good. Um, they're two of the better coaches in the league. Spo's got a little bit more experience at that this level, but still, uh, I trust both of them um, pretty much in an overall sense. Um, I guess I should ask you, you know, now that Miami leads 1-0, they have the uh, the driver's seat in, in some respects. I still think I, I picked Boston to win the series. I think they're the best team in the series, but now they're down 1-0. That does matter. Now you have to win three out of, uh, you know, four out of six, I should say. So that's a tough hill to climb. Broadly speaking, how are you feeling about the series now versus where you were before game one? I'm not sure where you were because I actually didn't ask you, but um, would your pick um, have changed? And what, what, what what's your feel now knowing what we know after one game? Yeah, I think I picked Boston in seven. This to me feels a lot like the Boston Toronto matchup where I just have no idea who to pick. You know, my brain says Boston is the better team, much as it did when they faced Toronto. That was kind of my stance. My brain said Boston, my heart said Toronto. I think in this situation, it's the same thing. My brain says Boston should win. I have a feeling with Miami, like kind of like I did against the Bucks. I didn't think they'd win that series, but I've grown more optimistic about Miami. Basically, every game they've been in the bubble. They've just looked better and better to me. And and to me, they're a team that's really hitting their stride and may not even have hit their stride yet. You know, they they might the, the best might be yet to come for for the Heat, although they have, you know, played at a really high level so far. So winning game one, the way they're playing, the way they've built momentum, like I said at the top of the show, just the confidence they're playing with. Certainly Boston's gonna figure some things out. They're gonna punch back. I expect this to be a long series, but you know, given that Miami won game one and I considered it kind of a toss-up going in, I'll probably change to Miami in seven, but 
you know, game two could very easily change that. If Boston wins by 20 in game two or even by three in game two, I might completely flip back the other way. It's, I think it's that kind of series. Yeah, I, I was more convinced on Boston than you were, I think, just listening back to that. Not that I thought it was going to be a walk over Miami. Certainly, I think I described them on a podcast with, with Bill DeFilippo as, uh, as a live underdog. I thought Miami was the underdog, but a team that could certainly win the series. Um, just for the record, I'm looking at one of the betting markets right now, and Miami is now a minus 150 or so favorite, which makes sense. Uh, it was fairly close after game one. Uh, Boston was a slight, a slight favorite. Now Miami getting, getting the win that they got in game one. That swings things as it should. I think I would still pick Boston, but like with very little confidence. I think now I went from favoring Boston in the series definitively, not hugely, but definitively to now it's more of a toss up for me. Um, and that's what the power of one win can do in a seven game series. Um, it would not surprise me at all if Miami wins. And if Miami wins game two, then obviously you're talking about a massive favorite at that point, especially with um, neutral court and another team having to win four out of five. So game two is, this is not breaking news to anybody, but game two is huge in any series, but especially here um, with a team like w- w- these teams are pretty close together. So, you know, we've seen crazy stuff already that we'll get to actually uh, later on in our conversation. But this is a spot where uh, I'd be okay with kind of any pick. I think I would probably take Boston in seven if you made me choose, but uh, with very little confidence. I'm really excited to watch it, though. Uh, this is going to be a fun, I think, very long series. I think that's the headline that I wrote after the game uh, on Tuesday for Dime was that this is going to be a fun, long series. And it's going to be. I- I'm fairly confident now. The only thing that would surprise me is if this game, if this was like a five-game series in either direction. Um, I can't imagine Miami blowing them out. I can't imagine Boston winning the next four. Uh, it, it's going to go at least six. I, I would guess seven, given what we've seen so far. I guess the only swing thing that we haven't mentioned is the potential of the Gordon Hayward players. We just don't know much about that. I think there's all kinds of indications from people that are reporting on it that he could be ready to play in the next few games. He's doubtful, officially listed as doubtful for game two, so I'm assuming he won't play in game two. But if he comes back... I don't know what he's going to look like. No one does, but he does give them another piece they don't have right now, which could be something to at least consider. Yeah, it's really interesting kind of the way that Hayward's been talked about in all this, which is to say he hasn't really been talked about much at all. You know, it's it's kind of strange that a player as good as him is absent from this team, not only because they're playing so well without him, but also because it just feels like when you're missing a player of Hayward's caliber, usually you hear a lot more about it. You hear about, oh, well, think about how much better they'd be with Gordon Hayward. And you get a little bit of that, but, I mean, we're 25 minutes into this podcast and we're really only just bringing him up. So <laughs> it, it's kind of strange just the way he's kind of receded from the the consciousness a little bit. But I agree with you. To me, he has the potential to come in and change the series, both because he offers them another playmaker and, like I mentioned earlier, his defense on Jimmy Butler. Gordon Hayward's not Kawhi Leonard, but he's 6'8", he's athletic, he's strong, uh, he's physical when he wants to be. And and he can, you know, sort of match up with Butler to a degree that I don't think Brown or Tatum really can. And and Smart, you know, as feisty as he is, remains a little bit undersized. Uh, so that's going to be a really fascinating storyline to follow. The other, you know, potential complication with that is that he's been off for so long. He's missed, it'll be five or six weeks, roughly, you know, by the time he comes back. If he comes back, um, he hasn't played in a little while. They're going to have to integrate him on the fly. That's really hard to do. Uh, Gary Harris, you know, with the Nuggets is kind of maybe the analogy there, but but that seems more of a, an anomalous type of thing to me where he was able to hit the ground running in a way that I'm not sure a lot of players could. And he's also being asked to play a smaller role. 
I was going to say, um, they're, they're also asking, they also basically, you know, it, anything they got from Gary Harris offensively was gravy, and we'll touch on him in exactly. a second, but um, they basically just needed Gary Harris to come in and play defense on the perimeter, and they, and everything else was a, was a a plus, obviously. Yeah. But and listen, it's, if it's that's different. Hayward's role in this series, I think that's, that's still helpful. Maybe he can be the Gary Harris for Boston that allows them to kind of tip the scales in their favor if it's 2-2 when he, when he comes back. Um, even if he's just Gary Harris... Or, or even a poor man's Gary Harris, I think that could still be beneficial uh, to Boston. The other thing that I'll just be, I'll note now before we kind of move on is Boston shot 53% at the rim in game one. I think that's a little bit of an aberration. They're not an amazing shooting team around the rim, and Miami does have good rim protection, but I would expect that to tick up a little bit. Um, I just, you know, when I go through the the shot charts and like where where does each team shoot well from, it seems like Miami has a lot of advantages. Just in, like they feel like the better three-point shooting team, the better shooting team at the rim, the team that doesn't rely as much on mid-range. Uh, although they can do that a little bit, it, it feels like you know Boston has the more talented scorers. But in a lot of ways, Miami's offensive structure almost is more advantageous for them than it is for Boston. Yeah, that might, that might be the case. Um, I don't know. It's a really interesting series. That's just kind of a stray thought. I know I kind of threw that out. No, way. it's okay. I think it is. Uh, it's a good point. I mean, there's there's so much to cut. We, we, we could do an hour on this series alone. Um, yeah, I think we agree. It's going to be close. It's going to be fun. Uh, maybe I'll bribe you to come back later on the series. If, if it goes too long, we can uh, overanalyze what we've, what we've already seen. I, I don't want to go over, uh, you know, too crazy on one game. There are other podcasts in which they would definitely do that. But um, there you go for now. All right, this is Brad coming to you in post-production. That will do it for today's podcast with Ben. Tomorrow, and in terms of uh, Thursday evening into Friday morning, we'll have more with Ben on the Western Conference, talking about the Clippers meltdown, Western Conference finals, et cetera, et cetera. So please stay tuned for that. Please subscribe to the podcast, check out Ben's work, and we'll see you in the same space in 24 hours.